0: You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics. The Nom.
1: Well, I gotcha. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. You thought I didn't see you now, didn't you? Uh huh. huh. You tried to sneak by me now, didn't you? <laughs> uh-huh. Uh huh. huh. Now give me what you promised, me! Give it me. Come on. Good.
0: Hello and welcome to In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. This time around, I'm going to be looking at The Nom number 72, which is the third part of the three part Operation Chicken Lips storyline. And that storyline takes place in March and April of 1972. And since I've already covered these months, as well as May of 1972, I'm going to skip historical context for the episode. Instead, I'll be talking about Season 1 of China Beach. Our song this time around is I Gotcha by Joe Tex, which reached number 2 on the Billboard Hot 100 in April of 1972. Tex actually released the song as a b-side to his track A Mother's Prayer, but got people's attention when a DJ flipped the record and began playing it. People from my generation will also recognize this song from its inclusion on the soundtrack to Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs in 1991. A soundtrack, by the way, that was pretty much required listening in my dorm during my freshman year of college, which was 1995 to 1996. But our comic is from July 28, 1992, and has a September 1992 cover date with a price of $1.75. The cover doesn't have a credit, and I couldn't find anything using Mike's Amazing World, but Mike Harris has penciled the other covers for this storyline, and it looks like his style, so I'm going to say that it's him. Story is titled Didi, and the creative team is Don Lomax, writer, Wayne Van Zandt, artist, Phil Felix, letterer, John Calise, colorist, Tim Toohey, assistant editor, Don Daly, editor, and Tom DeFalco was your editor-in-chief. We open on Easter Sunday, April 7th at Firebase Brass Hut. They are under siege and are fighting to the last man. The VC make their way past the wires and have to fall back and in an effort to save his men's lives, Sergeant Katowski blows a bunch of claymores, killing himself along with a number of other VC. We cut to a Huey that is following a Chinook flying over the jungle. On board that Huey is Ed Marks, who is upset that they are being ordered not to help evacuate the firebase. Instead, they're ordered to shoot down the Chinook, which is on its way to help. The pilot and co-pilot of the helicopter point out that they have been given orders to shoot it down when they spot the chopper, but they say they haven't spotted it, and Ed breathes a sigh of relief. Dawn breaks the next morning, and North Vietnamese tank support arrives to attack Brass Hat. The remaining men take cover in a bunker. They get a message to get on their frequency. The chopper carrying Ed engages the NVA tanks while Doc, who had commandeered the Chinook in the previous issue, lands at the firebase and tells everyone to get aboard. Above them, Huck, who is providing cover fire from the Huey, is hit and Ed is ordered to get on the M60. Ed picks up the gun and has a brief flash back to his tour in the NAM before saying that he's a journalist and not a combatant. He's then shoved aside, the, the gun is taken from him, and once the Chinook is in the clear, the Huey takes off. They land in Da Nang, and Ed knows that there will be trouble. Doc is placed under arrest, and Skipper yells that Colonel Barry is responsible and he'll make him pay. Ed follows Barry to his office and tells him flat out that he needs to, quote, A. Drop all charges against Doc, and B. Do everything he can to see that the remainder of the team stays together, wherever they are reassigned, and that he will make that young trooper the biggest hero since Audie Murphy. I think I can do it. How much do you think the American public will react when Specialist Nandan is court-martialed after saving 50 lives, four of them American? Something you should have done to begin with. Barry says that it's blackmail. Marx calls it justice. They come to an agreement where the charges are dropped and Barry's name and order stay out of his story. Not sure if he did the right thing, Ed makes his way across the base and is ready to leave. And then a few of the men approach him and thank him. They tell him that the guys who survive will be okay and then they invite him to drinks in honor of the Sarge. And Ed goes. I'm gonna start with my thoughts on the art Uh, Because as I was reading and rereading this, I just kept noticing how good it was. By this time, Wayne Van Sant was inking himself, and he had also had a lot more experience on the book. And this really showed. Aside from the excellent work that Jeff Isherwood did back on the early part of Wayne's time in the book, this is some of the best art I've seen out of him on the NOM. He's got some great details and facial expressions, such as Sergeant Katowski when he is buying time for his men by blowing himself up, and he really gets the scale of the battle that is being fought across well. The title page is a splash of a huge explosion across a much larger area of the firebase, and when we get to the point where the choppers are flying in to rescue the men, there are two pages, and I wish I knew what pages they were so that I could tell you, but the Book's pages aren't numbered. Where Van Sant uses a full page splash to show an overhead shot of the Huey after having launched all of its rockets, flying over the tanks that those rockets destroyed. It's a great set of dramatic pages, and that's followed up by a four-panel page that has the pilot and ed and inset panels, where the top action panel is another angle of the chopper and the tanks, and the bottom is just a shot of this mass of VC and NVA soldiers heading toward the base. It is really some of his best work on the book, and I will also give credit to John Calise for the coloring. By this point Marvel had moved from regular old comics paper to a better quality paper. It's not Baxter paper per se, but it held its color better and I can definitely tell that the coloring process had become more precise because of the way Van Sant and Khalees get to use shading and hue to get the enormity and the gravity of the situation across. Khalees uses shades of yellows, blues, and reds to complement Van Sant's use of various angles to convey the violence in the battle scene. It honestly took looks like both of them are using a cinematographer's eye, and I really like that about this book. The script is also really good. Don Lomax, like I may have mentioned before, this cut his teeth over at First Comics, and then he made his way to Marvel. I don't know if he'd had any sort of relationship with Doug Murray. But he gets Ed Marks right. This feels like the Ed that we met back in issue number one, but he's older, so it's almost like Doug Murray came back to writing the character. Ed's willing to bend rules, and he isn't backing down to someone, especially if he is standing up for what he believes in, and that's what you would have expected from a more mature and experienced version of the kid we met on his first tour back when the series started. I may have mentioned that Chuck Dixon really didn't use Ed Marks or some of the original characters and instead either created his own like Joe Howlin or grabbed people from Murray's second wave like Ice. That really worked for Dixon because in my mind it freed him up to tell stories that were varying so that the series did not get stale, especially since toward the end of Murray's run it did start to feel a little bit rote. But Lomax bringing Ed back after five years after his original tour feels natural. And it feels natural that as we are going to start closing out the series within about 12 issues, that, well, we close out with Ed's story as well. The actual plot of the story is a very typical, we take care of our own yarn. But that's not why you stay and read the whole thing. You stay because it just shows in a few pages how the situation in Vietnam was deteriorating as early as the early 1970s wore on, and also shows some of the resilience that the Viet Cong and NVA were known for. The United States would more or less completely withdraw in 1973, and then they would be completely gone in 1975. Back home, you had a very war-weary public, and the battle here shows, through Ed's telling off the Colonel, that it's hard here, but it's also hard back home in the world. And for a three-parter, Operation Chicken Lips is an outstanding effort and a continued return to form for the series. Usually I take a break here um, for historical context letters and ads, but since I'm going to go to China Beach, uh, I'm going to look at the uh, inside of the comic first, and then we're going to go to ads. And we do have a letter column this time around. So we have um, Elvis, or, oh, Uncle Elvis! Elvis, Uncle Elvis is writing in to say uh, Kudos to the creative team of Chuck Dixon, Kevin Gabasek, and Jimmy Palmiati for their work on Down on the Ground. The NOM 1969 was a cool wrap-up to the Punisher three-parter, and I thoroughly enjoyed this just-concluded tr- trilogy. The Jorge Savino cover piece was also quite interesting and pretty powerful to boot. I'll give him that one. I wasn't the biggest fan of those covers. Kevin Hayes of Coral Springs, Florida, writes in that he's been reading the NOM since issue one and he's currently 15 years old. So he started reading this when he was a kid, about like five years ago when he was like 10. Um, he says he's really look, he looks forward to every issue. He enjoyed the three part of the Punisher story. He says, My father, a Vietnam veteran, 1st Air Cavalry 7071, thought it would be nice for me to read this comic and learn about Vietnam. He was right. To me, this comic serves as a tribute to those who fell in the war. My uncle, Bruce R. Hayes, who was a lieutenant corporal in the 3rd, Mar- uh, 3rd March Division. Uh, 67 and 68, was killed in Vietnam. Thank you for having a comic like this. Without it, people wouldn't know what Vietnam was really like. As far as the book, I think it would be nice to show what happened to all the original characters of the 25th Infantry, kind of like a remembrance issue. Or maybe you could revolve back to the 25th on a regular basis. Or even show us a new division with a new Ed Marks character to follow through the Nam. Uh, The editor replies... About two months back, via conference phone hookup, the creative team behind the NOM tried to figure out where the book would go in the next few months. Many things came up. In fact, due to this intensive meeting of creative talent, some of the suggestions you wrote about, Robert, are already in the drafting board. For instance, witness the return of the Ed Marks. However, this is just one of many things to look forward to. In the months ahead, due to this long this hour long phone conversation, some of the most engrossing story arcs and one shot series concerning the Vietnam War ever planned for inclusion in the NAM will be seeing print. We're very excited about the big things ahead, so sit back, relax and enjoy. Robert Kelly of Staten Island, New York. Well, Rob's not from Staten Island, New York, so this isn't the Robert Kelly. Hi Rob. Uh, He enjoys the Punisher story. He does ask why the name tag, Castle comma Frank, is on the dog tag on the cover when Castiglione is the name that's given. He says, uh, the editor says, covers are an interesting part of any book. Usually they tie directly into the storyline, but for various reasons they don't. You're right. When Frank was in Vietnam, he was Castiglione, but we put Frank Castle's name on the dog tags to underline the storyline. And give the list affiliated with the Punisher's real name a means of instant recognition. Robert Sperry liked the Punisher stuff. He said the Punisher Warzone is a great thing. Robert Adams also liked it. Uh, he asks if you have done an issue of Ham- about Hamburger Hill. He says, I'm sure some 101st Airborne Vietnam vets would like to see that story. They said, No Hamburger Hill has not yet been documented in the pages of the NAM, but that doesn't mean it won't happen. Hearing what specific parts of the NAM people want to see helps us decide what stories to publish. We do have the return of NAM notes as well. These are, these are long ones, so, so strap in. A slick is a UHD Huey helicopter used to transport troops or cargo possessing only self-protection armament. Spec 5, specialist 5th class, equivalent pay grade to a buck sergeant, only in a specialized field. Triage is the second stage of medical treatment in which patients are prepared for the operating room. Stat is medical ease for immediately. Tet is the Vietnamese lunar new year. The CIA, of course, is the Central Intelligence Agency. Spook is a slang for a CIA operative. MACV, or Military Assistant Command Vietnam. This is the liaison officer for American and South Vietnamese forces. The brass hats who called all the shots during the Vietnam War. The DMZ was the demilitarized zone on no man's land separating North and South Vietnam at the 17th parallel. CORDS, Civil Operations and Rural Development. Psychological Operations Battalion, they planned and used propaganda to influence thinking. ARVN, or Arvin, the Army of the Republic of Vietnam, which is the South Vietnamese, the American allies. Highway 9 West is the main east-west highway in the northernmost province of Quang Tri. AIK, civilian workers employed by the U.S. military used for menial labor. AWOL, or absence without leave. When you're not where you should be, when you should be there. Mr. Charlie or Charlie or Victor Charles is, of course, Viet Cong. And then on the bottom right hand of the letter column, they tell you how, they give you advice for getting your letter printed. What will get your letter printed? Advice for getting a letter printed, like typing it up, etc., etc. Ads this month, we have a Fleer um, football card pack with a limited edition Mark Rippin subset. I think the Skins won the, f- the won the Super Bowl this right around this time. The same Castlevania 4 ad. We're seeing the Marvel Universe Series 3 ad. Um, this time around, we have Entertainment This Month mega hits. And um, we have the Executioner's song. Oh my god. God, this is my X-Men phase. This was my X-Men crossover. Um, the first one, I was like really into this one. Professional X is mortally wounded by Cable and the X-Men Vow Revenge in this excellent new 12-port crossover. And it's ca- I can't miss, it's highly recommended. There's Spider-Man 2099 is launching. Um, a lot of the same stuff we've seen. Image is coming out. And um, yeah, I'm not really, not really missing missing much else so we'll we'll move on there is a two-page in the staple in the center of the the center of the comic there's a two-page ad for tasmania for the sega genesis what does a guy have to do to get a decent meal around here welcome to tasmania home of the hit cartoon series now it's the hottest new game on sega genesis and lots of your favorite characters are there, like Taz, Bull Gator, the Bush Rats, Francis X, Bush Lad, and Axel. Our hero, Taz, is always hungry. But in this game, his dinner has been hidden away, way across the island, and you have to take him for a spin to find it. Just be warned, play Tasmania once, and you'll always be hungry for more. You forget how, like. I mean, I know Space Jam would come out, what, like, 97, 96, 97? But you forget, like, how, like, the Looney Tunes went through this renaissance, this resurgence in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, they're pretty big. There's uh, Walden uh, Walden Books ads for Forgotten Realms, The Legacy by R.L. Salvatore, and uh, the Mezo, <laughs> Menzo Baranzen box set. Sorry if I mispronounced that. There's an East Coast comics ad. Um, bullpen bulletins this month. Uh, let's see. Stands on his soapbox again, I think. And he's just he's plugging um, he's plugging the 2099 line and saying that he's going to be doing Ravage 2099. Uh, the bullpen bulletin bit this month is about a bunch of Marvel people going out to uh, California and some of them threw out the first ball at a local comics convention, and, yeah, some of them went to see, um, went to Industrial Light and Magic, and and then we have hot new heavy metal group War Babies also dropped by the bullpen to witness our hard-working team as we went through spring training. Fans of hard rock and music should check out the War Baby's new album. These guys may never play the national anthem at Yankee Stadium, but their music is ready for the major leagues. Um, And then they mentioned all the way at the bottom that they're talking about um, Dennis Miller's syndicated talk show that apparently mentioned Marvel Comics in the late 60s in one of his episodes. I used to watch that. I used to tape it because I couldn't always stay up that late on a school night. The Hulk still lounging by the poolside for the subscription ad. There are three particular Game Boy games on the inside back cover: Soccer Mania, Hook, and Hudson Hawk. Hudson Hawk had a video game. The back cover is a comic ad from Charleston Chew. So it's 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 offering. Um, you can send a wrapper from a from a Charleston Chew bar. Plus 50 cents, and they'll send you a limited collection edition Marvel comic featuring four all-packed adventures. It's Spider-Man, Wolverine, Ghost Rider, and Silver Surfer, written and drawn by Larry Hama, Sam Keith, Tony Isabella, Howard Mackey, and more. Why I never took advantage of this, I don't know. I can imagine. I don't think it's going to get me a lot of money if I ever actually had it. But you think I would have, considering it would have just been a 50-cent thing. And I I do love me some Charleston Chew. Still do. Still do sometimes. My wife thinks it's gross, but I love me some Charleston Chew. So that'll to do it for the NOM issue 72. Um, I'm going to take a quick break, and when I get back, I am going to talk about China Beach. Stick around. Your white privilege, what is that? (laughs) <laughs> Does skin color really have any bearing on who you are as a person? I'm so upset that we don't want to see cops killing unarmed people in the streets of America. Like, why? The E.T. Awards were last night. Notably, they were very black. Oh, but can I say that? I
1: think there's a difference between having a point of view and being a partisan? We trying to kill him or scare them? Killing is Names, no number, just street pleasure. No, so I don't condone it, but I understand that. Every time I speak, I want the truth to come out. Because it's early on when you make the big mistakes that cost you millions down the road. One of the things that we all have in common is that we all draw a line somewhere. Questions, we don't have answers. It's a podcast dedicated to tackling society's most quizzical queries and persistent problems. Each episode sees host Donovan Morgan Grant. So you're having a non-minority represent a minority and tell the story of a minority, but not with an actual minority. And Harrison Chu. Essentially how you can have your cake and eat it too, but I really wish you wouldn't. As they confront questions that afflict our everyday existence, such as, can war end? I don't know. Is there a morality to sexual fantasies? I don't know. When is killing justified? I don't know. Are there things comedians shouldn't joke about? I don't know. Can you be outraged on other people's behalf? I don't know. Nobody knows everything, but everyone knows something. Society's ills will be fought by that society. Become a creative contributor to the show by sending in a question or providing your voice and opinion on an existing episode. People are just so afraid of being thought of as a- when everybody already thinks of them as a- It's amazing. That sounds like a Facebook <laughs> yeah. Questions will be asked, and answers will be questioned. So join Donovan and Harry as they invite you each week for a discussion of questions we don't have answers we didn't even talk about japan in this one i think we really did well <laughs> the show can be found at questionsnoanswers.com on itunes and right after the show at q no at gmail.com i just hope it's not boring to listen to like oh my god they're not going anywhere truly they don't have answers <laughs> <laughs> well i can also mention more star trek episodes <laughs> My mind, time after time, I see reflections of you and me. Reflections of the way life used to be.
0: So, starting this episode and continuing on for the next three, I'll be looking at the television series China Beach, which aired on ABC from 1988 until 1991. The series is available on DVD, but they may not be the easiest to come by, and it's not entirely in streaming at the moment. I think it's not entirely in streaming at all, but... Um, and I can only imagine what's holding up any further release is uh, the music rights, because there's just like a ton of old television shows streaming here and there on on various uh, things. So, and and that is what held up the series for quite a while when it was released as DVD. The series takes place during the Vietnam War. Uh, it takes place at a medical evac hospital in My Khe, which is nicknamed China Beach, and the characters are the denizens of the base, including doctors and nurses who work at what is officially designated the 510 Evac, but is referred to as the Five and Dime. The source material for the show is the book that I covered last episode, Home Before Morning, by Linda Vandevanter, and was developed for television by William Broyles and John Sacred Young. John Wells, who would also have executive produce E.R. and the post-Aaron Sorkin seasons of The West Wing, would come on during the first season and be one of the executive producers from that point onward. While the show was not hugely successful in terms of blockbuster ratings, China Beach did have a very loyal following, and it was loved by critics. So it lasted four seasons, and it was nominated for several major awards, including Golden Globes and Primetime Emmy Awards. And this is a rundown of of some of the ones that they won. Uh, It won a 1990 Golden Globe Award for Best Television Series Drama, a 1990 Peabody Award, a 1988 Primetime Emmy Award for Best Costuming in a Dramatic Series, the Outstanding Lead Actress in a Drama Primetime Emmy Award in 1989 and 1992 for Dana Delaney, the Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Drama Primetime Emmy Award in 1990 for Mark Helgenberger. For these four episodes, I'm going to cover the characters, as well as the overall story arc for the season, as well as memorable episodes or moments. I'm also going to dig into some of the special features on the DVD collection, as well as some of the books that came out with the DVDs. Each season has a small booklet with basic information about that season's episodes, and there's also a special booklet for the entire set called Tales from the Five and Dime that has reflections from the cast and producers, as well as some of the letters that were received by fans of the show. While I'm not going to be covering or reading all of that, I will share at least some of it, especially the fan letters. After all, I do that for the issues of the NOM. To start us off, let me go ahead and read a text piece that is in the booklet for each season as well as the Tales from the Five and Dime booklet, and that is from the series star, Dana Delaney. China Beach changed my life, not only as an actor but as a human being. It was the first time I realized my responsibility as an actor. We would be telling stories of a time that ripped apart our country 20 years earlier, but also the worlds of people who are still alive today. It was important to get it right. The nurses who went to Vietnam taught me the meaning of altruism. They didn't have to go. It was their choice. The soldiers called them their angels. They made a difference in the lives of 19-year-old boys who were far from home in a strange land. Often, they were the last people those boys ever saw. I was honored to have the chance to play Lieutenant Colleen McMurphy. I will carry her with me for the rest of my life. I still have the Purple Heart that a soldier sent me in thanks it means more to me than any award I will ever receive And let's get into season one which only has uh, seven episodes six hour long episodes plus a two-hour pilot movie Wikipedia um, lists the pilot as a two-part season zero Um, other sites listed as eight episodes breaking the pilot into two episodes but if I look at the original air dates the movie the pilot movie aired as a two hour special and it aired 30 years ago April 26th 1988 with the first regular length episode home airing the very next night from there the show ran weekly on Wednesday nights at 10 o'clock in the first season until the season finale which was in the beginning of June It was essentially a late-season replacement show, perhaps something that was dropped in as a tryout, as Dynasty's eighth season had ended at the end of March, and ABC had run a few episodes of a medical drama named Heartbeat. At any rate, China Beach was successful enough to garner a full-season episode run the following year. What I'm going to do for this season is actually focus more on the characters than on the individual episodes. I realize that there are only seven episodes, but most of the characters introduced in season one would wind up becoming the core cast that we followed through all four years, so I figure that this will help provide a solid introduction. But I will give an overview and my thoughts on the episodes of season one as well. As mentioned earlier, the show stars Dana Delaney as Lieutenant Colleen McMurphy, who is an army nurse and whom the producer's character notes describe as an Irish Catholic girl from the Midwest who was supposed to be a boy but wasn't. Delaney, as I mentioned, won two Emmy Awards for her role and was the focus of most of the episodes, although the show is truly an ensemble and the various storylines that were given to other characters reflected that. And I'll be honest. Delaney was what attracted me to the show, because I've seen her in movies, I've seen her on other television shows, she voiced Lois Lane on the Superman the Animated series in the 90s. Plus, while there were a number of movies and television shows that focused on the Vietnam War, the ones that I had seen and was familiar with and that I have covered have mostly male protagonists. Which makes sense, of course, because there were while there were women serving in the armed forces in the Vietnam War, they were prohibited from combat. And most of those Vietnam movies and TV shows and things that I've looked at deal with combat. So this is a little bit different. It's not unfamiliar. I mean, if you want to give an ele- elevator pitch for China Beach, it's MASH in Vietnam. And that's not entirely accurate. But like I said, if I'm boiling it down to a concept, that's what it is. But what you have here, though... You take that basic concept of MASH in Vietnam, and you have a unique situation where a high-profile television show about the Vietnam War has a woman as its star and its protagonist. And uh, both McMurphy as a character and Delaney as an actress had the strength to carry the show. Uh, when we open, she is short. Um, in fact, she's about, she's about a week away from flying home. So she's a seasoned veteran. By the end of the pilot, she's decided to re-up, and we will, over the course of those four seasons, see her develop relationships with parent, patients and other characters in and around the Five and Dime, but also fight her own demons, one of which we will see is PTSD, which manifests itself in alcoholism, especially after the war is over. On the opposite side of that coin is Nan Woods as Cherry White. She's a fresh-faced kid who is a volunteer known as a donut dolly, and we've seen donut dollies in some of the earlier episodes and some of the earlier issues of of this uh, comic. Her arrival at the beginning of the pilot is what is the catalyst for our story, as she is the new naive person, she's kind of our Ed Marks, and she's essentially shown around China Beach, where she meets the other characters. While she's not the main character by any means, Cherry is the focus of a major storyline for the first season because not only is she over there doing her volunteer work, she's actually looking for her brother. Uh, he was a Marine who went reported as MIA and whom she actually believes is still alive. Uh, Nan Woods, who played Cherry White, she would leave the show in the middle of the second season, but we'll get to that on the next episode when I cover season two. Next up is, uh, in characters is McMurphy's chief love interest for the season, Natch Austin, who is played by Tim Ryan. Uh, he's a pilot and that's a great pilot name. You know, it's, it's right up there with Maverick, you know, he's Natch. Um, He's a pilot with whom she's having an affair. It gets her in a little bit of trouble later on in the season finale when she is uh, basically almost court-martialed, not completely court-martialed, but um, very close to court-martialed for basically when a patient goes missing. But um, he's also, you know, he's her love interest. He's kind of a prick. Uh, It's it's kind of brilliant. Uh, The writers and producers are playing with tropes of both military shows and soap operas the hotshot pilot falling for the pretty lead actress um natch is almost gone more or less by season two he comes back a few times uh his status drops to recurring as opposed to a regular cast member and over the course of these four seasons love interests for dana delaney's character mcmurphy come in and out of the of the show because if i'm being honest though the the true love interest is the next character I want to talk about is uh, Dick Richard, who is played by Robert Picardo. Uh, and yeah, the name Dick Richard was done on purpose. Now, if you rem- if you know Robert Picard, if you know the name Robert Picardo, you probably remember him from, from I think it was Star Trek Voyager, where he played a doctor. Um, prior to this, uh, and around this time, his uh, most famous role or the thing that people on television would have recognized him for anyway would have been as coach cutlip on the wonder years and well his character is a well look at his name Um, honestly though it's kind of like they took some of the more well-known properties of someone like hawkeye on mash you know like some of those characters and they just made him a little more cynical even mean at some points uh he's got a wife and a child back home um and his marital status changes and deteriorates over the course of the first couple of seasons. And that's, that's a, it's a really, really good storyline because it's not done, you know, it's done at the forefront as the A plots sometimes, but it's also kind of a CDE kind of like background plot that's going on through basically as a thread. And it shows the toil that the relationships back home took, uh, or the beating of those relationships back home took from you know people going off to war um and besides the other thing is is that like he's clearly in love with mcmurphy because the two of them she's like his chief nurse so the two of them work together all the time and they have this tension between them that um that clearly uh you would be shipping them or you'd be wondering if it was ever actually going to happen Our next character is Mark Helgenberger's Casey Koloski, the character that she won an Emmy for back in 1990. This is a woman who is a civilian volunteer, but she also lives on the base. However, she's a part-time prostitute. She's more or less the connection to the black market in the area. She really wants to be wealthy, and she figures that working there and and having this side gig or whatever she's doing, this hustle that she has, is her way to fame and fortune. Her questionable morals will often come into conflict with a number of the other characters, and sometimes she's actually involved with another uh, the other characters uh, emotionally, romantically, or somehow in their plot line. One of the other characters she constantly comes in conflict with throughout the series is Lila Garreau. Uh This is she's played by Conchetta Tomei. Um, I don't believe there's a relationship to Marissa Tomei. Lila is the CEO of the woman, women on the base So she's the den mother but she also prides herself on running a tight ship she's a veteran who's been working in the armed forces in that capacity in some way or another since like the second world war she's kind of the old battle axe uh, moving on this is an ensemble cast so there are a lot of characters to keep track of but before I get to the next one they're so distinct in who they are that it becomes pretty easy to keep track of them as you keep watching the show and and one of them the next one i want to talk about is michael Boatman's samuel beckett now michael boatman was on spin city the michael j fox uh show in the 90s and here he plays a guy who's basically a mortician and the coroner on site of the five and dime he uh he registers the cadavers and does the autopsies and things like that and um he is In the first season, the one African American character in the main cast, uh, there's another one will be added, a woman will be added in season two. Now, Beckett spends a lot of his time during the day in the morgue talking to the various corpses, and it's a really good portrait of somebody who, well, you can see how the war might be getting to this person, and it also provides some really good gallows humor to a number of episodes. And this show was not afraid to be humorous when it had to be. Another, uh, and and we see that in a character called Booney, who's played by Brian Wimmer, Um, he is kind of the goofy guy, he's the lifeguard, he's the, helps run the bar, the nightclub at the Five and Dime, because it is an R&R facility, in addition to a medical facility, but he's got skeletons in his past. He's haunted by things, and as we go through the four seasons, we see that actually getting worse, and again, the the emotional toll things are taking on the individual characters is something that really, really makes this show what it is. Booney has a friend um, named Dodger, who's played by Jeff Cober. He is on the opposite side of things as Booney. He is a Marine, and he is also like the epi- the guy who is the epitome of that thousand yard stare he's always serious kind of short uh in in kind of tone and, and 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 talking he doesn't say much and there's just this intensity about him and uh those two play off each other very very well so you have this very diverse very diverse grouping of people and personalities the last character I want to talk about before I get to some just basic stuff about the plot of season one and take us out is Chloe Webb's Lorette Barber, who was really only a billed as a guest star in season one because she was only on for those seven episodes and then, you know, went her—Lorette uh, went her, her way. And uh, according to interviews of, of Webb pertaining to the show, she was only ever signed on for the one season, so it's not like she was fired or anything. Uh, Loretta U.S.O. singer that thinks that singing with a group that is touring Vietnam is going to be her shot at stardom. So maybe it is. We'll see. Um, there are only seven episodes in the entire season. I've mentioned that a couple of times. And the summary of what happens in that season, I'm actually going to make it pretty short. As we go through seasons two, three, and four, I will get into more detail about that. Because there's more episodes and then you know, it gets, it gets a little more uh, involved. Now, Cherry arriving in Vietnam the week that McMurphy is supposed to be leaving is our opener, and it serves as the catalyst for the season's overall story arcs. You've got McMurphy in Natchez's romance, Cherry searching for her brother, and Lorette trying to find fame and fortune. By the end of this season, these three storylines are pretty much resolved, although the romance between McMurphy and Natch carries over into future seasons, and while Lorette's storyline is fun, you can tell that it's it's there not only to give us the perspective of someone who was touring with the USO, as well as kind of show us some of those performances. In fact, um, there's one episode where Nancy Sinatra guest stars as Nancy Sinatra in the 60s performing... Uh, these boots are made for walk-ins, so it's it's kind of like, let's get somebody up who actually did the USO tour. But uh, Lorette's also there for comic relief. Uh, she gets McMurphy out of her shell in one episode and singing on stage in, like, this Diana Ross and Supremes wig or whatever. Um, and she provides the free-spirited chick that is a contrast to McMurphy's war-weary veteran, Casey's hardened woman, Cherry's naive kid. Cherry by the way has one of the more compelling storylines of the season. She like I said she's been searching for her brother who had supposedly gone MIA but whom we eventually discover, discover actually went AWOL. She's found and he they find him in the Saigon underground and he has a drug problem. Uh, it's a revelation that devastates Cherry to the point where she's a much sadder character as her time on the show goes on, and while I am sure that the story could have been written to go beyond just these episodes, it comes to a quick resolution, and I think that really is just enough considering what we go through in seasons 2, 3, and 4. Besides, the focus on this season really isn't so much plot as it is character. And that's why I took the time to detail who the characters were before I actually got into what happened in the season. You see that in the pilot, which is the strongest episode of the first season, um, by the way, and you see that because, well, pilot episodes are ones that do sometimes look really creaky or clunky because the creators haven't worked all the kinks out. But China Beach, it's almost like they put everything they could into the pilot because they wanted to get picked up. So it reads almost like a movie in itself. The inner conflict that McMurphy is going through, like, really on display through a number of scenes. Uh, She's got this great scene where she has this breakdown while she's trying to get blood-covered scrubs off. And Delaney commits to the emotion of the episode with just intensity. And this is something she actually notes on the DVD bonus features because she says that for years after this, she would go on auditions and she found herself having to tone things down because the scripts she was reading weren't as intense as China Beach was. And that is something you walk away from the episode like remembering the episode or the credits roll and you feel the emotional weight of the events of the episode on you through the closing credits, uh, which has a great, great... Piece to them, a great scored piece to them, and I will, um, I will play that uh, right before my outro today. Season one's brevity also serves as a great primer to the series as a whole, and. While the series isn't available for streaming, like I said, you could purchase the, the DVDs, and you can purchase them as individual seasons or as a box set. And they have bundles and things on Amazon. So if you were interested and you wanted to track down season one on DVD just to give it a shot, and you watch those seven episodes, and if you like them, then you pick up the rest of them. I happened to find uh, the box set at a decent price on eBay a couple of years ago, so I was pretty pretty psyched about that. But I I, I mean I will recommend the entire series. It's 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 a really great great show to watch Um, I will say that it's not a show you can binge it suffers from the uh, thing that a lot of shows of the dramas of this era do is that it's a very dense storytelling per episode so it's not meant to be five episodes at once um, and the emotional intensity, you do need a breather. So I used to watch these about at the rate of about like one a night or two a night, and, and that usually th- that kept me going. Uh, where I, I got I got kind of time off between episodes. So I'll I'll come back with season two next episode. But before we go, and this is something I want to do with the end of every segment about China Beach, is read a letter that's in uh, from the from a fan to the show that's featured in the Tales from the Five and Dime book which came with the DVD set and uh, this is from Kelly Russell. There's no um, address or place or anything like that. It's it's a handwritten letter. It says, I'm writing to congratulate all the cast and crew of China Beach. It was an outstanding show that I feel showed what really happened in Vietnam. I wish that the show wasn't ending. I am 14 years old and in school. They teach us about Vietnam, but I'm never really sure what they tell us is true or not true. My dad served in Vietnam for two years, and he was at China Beach. When we would watch the show, sometimes he would get tears in his eyes, and I've never really seen my dad cry. That's how powerful the show was. I want to wish all of you the best of luck in whatever you do. I think that you are some of the best actors and actresses around. Take care. Sincerely, Kelly Russell. And I, and I use that because over the course of reading and discussing the Nam, I've highlighted letter columns as well. And one of the recurring themes through a number of the letters is that people who were in the war or who had parents in the war were coming to really understand what was going on in the war. And you see it in this show as well. So that, that's why... I, this is one of the other reasons I chose this show because it's, it's authenticity and it's... Um, and it's honesty. And that'll do it for this episode. Uh, come back next episode. I will be looking at the NOM number 73. It's part of a two part storyline called Siege It On An Lok. And that will continue our reunion with Ed Marks. Plus, I'll take a look at season two of China Beach. Until then, please check the blog for show notes. And I want you to know that you can f- also follow me on Twitter at PopAff. That's P O P A F F. So please follow me for updates about things that are coming down the pike. And as always, take care and thanks for listening. have reached the end of another episode of in country all stories and characters are copyright marvel comics and all other media referenced are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only feedback can be sent to pop affidavit at gmail.com and you can follow the podcast at facebook.com slash in country podcast show notes and extras can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demonza of Milan, Italy. Please support this podcast and all the other Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at TwoTrueFreaks.com anytime you shop. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and join me next time for the latest chapter in the saga of The Nom. Oh, I got you. Give it all.